You made it. Who had a hard time getting here this morning? Yeah, a bunch of us did. It's a, it's a fun morning to be in Portland traffic uh, with the Portland Marathon going on. And then you come in from the rain and the stress and all of the craziness outside. You settle in and you begin to hear what I think are some of like the top 10 like beautiful comforting Bible readings, right? You've got Habakkuk with the vision for the appointed time, right? It will come, it will come, the vision will come. Wait for it, it will not tarry. The psalmist encourages the beleaguered people of Israel that the righteous will possess the land. You don't need to worry about the evildoers and the wicked. Paul's encouraging his protege, Timothy, to rekindle the gifts of God within him. I mean, who doesn't love this stuff, right? We, we sang, for heaven's sake, we sang my favorite hymn of all time, right? This beautiful Wesleyan hymn asking God to rekindle that flame of sacred love upon the altars of our hearts. I mean, if you're not feeling warm and fuzzy by this point, I don't know what's wrong with you. I don't know what to tell you. But then Ken comes careening down the aisle with this, I mean, frankly, offensive gospel reading. Jesus has this weird little diatribe about how we're all just worthless and unworthy slaves and seems to compare the life of faith to, like, the drudgery of serving a master at his table. Jesus says, which of you, when your slave comes in from the field, would invite him to sit at your table? No, you would give your slaves commands, right? Fix my dinner, then you can sit down to your own menial little meal downstairs with the other servants, do your work, then you can relax. That's how it should be with you, he tells his disciples, these hapless peasants and fisherfolk who certainly do not own slaves themselves and are more likely to have actually started life as somebody else's slave, right? This is how it should be with you, Jesus says. When you have done everything you've been ordered to do, you come before your master and say grovelingly, we are worth slaves. We have done only what we ought to have done. I mean, don't expect a reward for doing your job. I guess that's like the take-home here. That's a slightly less offensive way at getting what I, what I think Jesus is trying to do in this object lesson about slaves and masters. It's, a, it's frankly not a very helpful text to launch our annual giving campaign, which we are doing this morning. Uh, we, d we didn't choose We Are Worthless Slaves, We Are Only Doing What We Ought To Have Done as our campaign theme this year. It didn't seem to sing in quite the same way as There's a Vision for the Appointed Time or Rekindle the Gift, right? All of that I can preach. Like, I can preach the heck out of that stuff. I don't know what to do with We Are Worthless Slaves. Uh, but Jesus delights in, in this kind of thing, right? He delights in being off-message. Whenever there's conventional wisdom to be overturned, he goes there with a delight of, the, of a provocateur, deliberately rust his listeners' feathers with uncomfortable imagery and slightly offensive ideas about what it means to be a disciple of God. Faith is not a reward for good behavior. I'm on board with that. I don't particularly like hearing it necessarily, but maybe that's, a, maybe that's a helpful little bit of cold water to throw on us from time to time. The disciples want more of it, right? They ask Jesus to increase their faith. We've been working really hard for you, they're saying. The least you could do is give us a little bit more of the mojo. Right? I think that's their way of saying, we want more. We want a little more magic. We want a little more power. We want a little more influence, a little more respect. We want things to come a little bit easier. We, we'd like to sally through life with the confidence of like a Mother Teresa or a Desmond Tutu. We want, you know, we want what those people have, the faithful people, the great people, the saints. Increase our faith. Make us truly devoted. Rekindle that flame of sacred love upon the altars of our hearts and let it burn with some kind of unquenchable mighty fire that can do incredible deeds and bring about the kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. And I'm with them, right? I, I get a little tired some days of, of managing a scruffy faith. 
I'll admit to you the secret that professional church people really probably would prefer you didn't know, that there are days when climbing up into this pulpit to talk about God stuff again on a Sunday morning feels a heck of a lot more like drudgery than it does like divinity. But that's not unique to me, right? That's not unique to preachers. I think most of us feel this way from time to time when it comes to the faith game, right? Like, like everybody else has something that we don't, that we're down here struggling in a way that must mean that we're getting something wrong, right? Because, you know, living this Instagram-ready life of confidence and trust and hashtag blessed seems to come so much more easily to so many more people. I mean, there are days when we're flying high, right? There are days when the, the majesty and the glory of all of creation are, are ours. There are days when counting my blessings feels as natural as breathing. And there are days when just, like, waking up and getting out of bed feels like an act of resistance. How long, O oh Lord? That's what Habakkuk says. How long? That's his cry. How long will I cry for help and you will not listen? How long must I cry violence and you will not save? Habakkuk is watching like all the bad people get ahead, right, while the good people suffer. That's an existential situation. It probably feels a little familiar. And God's solution, God's answer to this heartfelt cry down through the ages is like, well, just wait it out, dude. Like, hang on a little bit longer. There is a vision. You're going to have to, you're going to have to trust it. You're going to have to develop a little bit of patience. I'm not good at patience. I don't know about you. This question of what you're doing while you're waiting around for the vision to become clear, right? That's not just a question about faith or trust. That's not a, just a theological question, at least it's not in my life. This last year has been a year for me of waiting, sometimes patiently, sometimes expectantly, sometimes more often very anxiously, uh, waiting, to be, waiting for the vision to be revealed. I'm, I'm not a very trusting person. I like to know the plan in advance, right? I'm good at like knowing the plan, working the plan, but as, as, as most of you know, my, my husband James and I separated a year ago. And when that first happened, I kind of went into the mode I know, right? I went into management mode. I went into like crisis management mode. I was, you know, kind of confident in my own ability to engineer this situation, right? Figure out the steps. I went into management mode with a vengeance and learned rather quickly that uh, people's lives are not projects to be managed and people's marriages are not problems to be solved. I should have known that in advance, uh, but I had to learn it the hard way. I had to learn how to wait, actually, how to not know the plan in advance and deal with the day-to-day -day, uh, of figuring out, okay, what comes next, while we wait to see what emerges. And it turns out that there are the, the, the Bible actually can be trusted on this score. There is a vision for the appointed time, and if it seems to tarry, learning how to wait for it is actually well worth doing. I'm not going to pretend that like, I've got it all figured out, that James and I have like, solved everything. The vision is still hazy for us, to be perfectly frank. But a piece of what James and I have learned in this year of waiting is that you don't actually have to know where the script is going in order to be faithful in taking the next steps into the next couple parts of the story. So where he and I have kind of landed is that we're, we're committed to being family to one another, even if we don't do it as a married couple. That commitment that we made doesn't end, even if the organization of it shifts and changes. That's a kind of unbelievable degree of uncertainty for somebody that didn't expect to end up in this place when I made my vows before my bishop at this altar, and I'm okay with it. I've actually learned um, a deep kind of trust 
in that kind of uncertainty. Because as Paul says to Timothy, I know the one in whom I have placed my trust, and that trust has not failed me. And I'll tell you the other, the other way I learned this lesson about waiting and trust. I actually learned it from you. I learned it from you, Trinity. I learned that I could trust you with something hard in my life. I didn't initially want to say anything at all about what was happening to me. I told Susan Lindauer, my senior warden at the time, like, I want to get through a whole divorce process and never breathe a word of it to my congregation. Thinking that would be some kind of like mark in my favor. Like, look how good he is, no one knew. Um, and Susan, being a good friend and a very patient listener, said, I'll support you in whatever you decide, Nathan. Um, it actually took my mother sitting me down at Mike's drive-in. My mom is a pastor's wife. She's been a pastor's wife for 40 years, and she very rarely plays this card, uh, but she did. <laughs> she said, look, those people love you. They care about you. They need to hear it from you, and you can trust them with that. And my mom was right. When I, when I wrote you the little note that I wrote in the email back in May, letting you know it was happening for me and asking for your prayers, you you gave me that. You repaid my trust in spades. I can't tell you how many people reached out for me not to pry or intrude or ask intrusive questions, but to say things like, Nathan, we love you. We're thinking about you. We're here if you need us. One of the best responses that I got from somebody, I have actually stolen now. I liked it so much. She says, I don't, I don't know what to say to you except that I love you and I care about you. And that was all I needed to hear. I knew that I could trust you with this thing that was happening for me. And you have repaid that trust so many times. So there are, there are two words on this pledge card that's in front of you in the pews this morning. They represent this year's theme. It's not, we are worthless slaves, we have done only what we ought to have done. It's this idea of what it means to be connected and committed. When we started playing around with those words this summer, connected and committed seemed to resonate with a lot of us, right? It has to do with what we're working on at Trinity right now, trying to build a community in which people really feel a strong connection. But for me, as I've thought about it more, connected and committed are actually kind of personal for me. And that doesn't usually happen with the annual stewardship message, but it has this year. I've always felt very connected to this community. You all invested in me in incredible ways when I was like a 20-something-year-old youth pastor who was green around the ears. But this year, connected feels a lot deeper to me when I think about my relationship to this community. I feel connected to Trinity because when I was going through something hard, you walked with me and you let me trust you with the hard stuff in my life. You reminded me of what a church can actually be when we're at our best, when we're committed to being honest, compassionate, connectors with one another. We can lean on one another when we're struggling. We can rejoice with one another when we're flying high. And I've experienced both of those kinds of support at Trinity. I'm here to tell you that support is everything. Those connections matter. And it's because of those connections, this beautiful web of compassion and love that we're weaving here, it's because of my connectedness that my commitment to Trinity has been strengthened. I mean, it's a, it's a kind of self-interested thing, right? It's a weird thing to write a pledge card to the place that pays your salary. Uh, but this year, my pledge, which is you know, a portion of my paycheck that I return back to the work that God is doing in this place, this year for me, that pledge represents a way of saying thank you. It's connection and it's commitment. According to Jesus, that relationship of trust and commitment, that's actually what faith looks like. 
he suggests faith is not just found in the saintly people, in the Mother Teresas and the Desmond Tutus, right? The rock-solid believers. Faith is not found in spectacular feats of daring do, mulberry trees being uprooted and planted in the sea. Faith is staying connected and staying committed to the people that God puts in our life, the people who end up saving us, I think. Faith looks like doing your job faithfully without the expectation that you're going to get a gold star at the end of the day. Faith is not found in eloquent prayers and unshakable confidence in an unassailable future. Faith is learning how to trust that uncertainty and keep showing up in relationships that are complicated and beautiful. So showing up, even on the days that I don't feel like it, for me means putting myself in proximity to the grace that is on offer all over my life and finding little ways day by day to rekindle the gift, right? To recommit to this weird and wonderful life with all of its challenges and its heartbreaks and all of its wonder and its glory. It turns out, not to argue with my Lord, but it turns out that we're not just unworthy slaves who are doing only what we ought to have done. I think it's more than that. I think we're the scruffily faithful, slightly irreverent, profoundly worthy servants of a gracious God, a God who keeps showing up and who invites us to keep showing up, keep connecting with one another, keep committing to what God is doing in our midst. If that's a vision that you want to be a part of, this is the place for you.